Carolyn from Arlington, Virginia. This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Hello, and welcome to episode 98 of the DWP Podcast. Fear me, I've been on plenty of podcasts. Get under the bed and I'll bring you the night terrors. Indeed, welcome to episode 98 of the Doctor Who podcast, and contrary to reports of my absence uh, that I, I reported on the last podcast, I'm afraid <laughs> I'm still here, at least for another couple of podcasts, so I'm very sorry to disappoint both you listeners and you too, Trev and Tom. You can't quite do a professional podcast yet. Here was, I thought I could stretch out my legs on the camper van sofa without having to scrunch up for James, but another <laughs> week... Of cramps. Don't you know. don't have to scrunch up that much. I'm only small and svelte. I only you, take up a very small part of the You take up a lot of, of room, sofa. James. You take up a lot of room, especially that cat. <laughs> yeah, she's a bit odd, really. I shouldn't bring that cat, particularly as I'm allergic to them, but there you go. We are going to be talking about night terrors. Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, but we'll be doing that in a short moment because you've been very, very prolific in your feedback of let's kill hitler so guys let's go over let's go over to that desk over there where we've got all our feedback laid out nicely so we can respond to it in a calm measured way let's listen to donald's first from louisiana hello doctor who podcast this is donald from louisiana Uh, i want to call in and give some quick thoughts on let's kill hitler i know i'm really late uh for the podcast hopefully uh you guys will honor this uh i like to say that i liked it a lot. I really enjoyed it. I do have a few concerns, though. With with this series six, do you think that uh, Stephen Moffat has completely abandoned the the self-contained story? Uh, something that I really rather enjoyed uh, during the RTD era. Um, it, it seems to be just you know not there. Every time I think there's going to be a self-contained story, it turns into the season arc. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, I can't really decide. But I was just wondering, you know, is this uh, something that you guys have a problem with or do you just not care at all? Also, uh, we did find out that the silence isn't those uh, little creatures from uh, the opener. Um, everyone was saying, well, these are going to be, you know, the, the Moffat era bad guys. These are the new Daleks. And now it's starting to look more and more like we probably won't see them again. They were just, you know, another, uh, I guess, henchman of this uh, order of silence. So I was wondering what you guys thought about that. Uh, Love the show. Uh, Don't ever stop doing it, ever. Talk to you next time. Thank you, Donald from Louisiana. I I think probably the main question in that about uh, self-contained stories is probably going to be answered very soon, or it's probably you've already answered it yourself, because uh, Night Terrors is, I suppose, the very definition of a Moffat-era contained story, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. So... As to whether we have a problem with it, um, I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm, I mean, I suppose it depends at the end of the day whether it's a good story. I've said before how much I personally love the idea that we could uh, have a whole season with self-contained stories, just let them stand on their own two feet rather than having to watch 
you know, like another six or seven stories to make sense of the one you're watching then. To be honest, I think you're right, Trev, but I don't think TV works the way it used to. I mean, I, I love the idea that uh, you can just sit down and have a have a quick snack of Doctor Who, but it, the reality is that people watch TV in a slightly different way now, and if, if you're going to sit down with a box set, you might have uh, an evening. But, then, but even then, the stories, although there's an arc going on, I think you can take them one one bite at a time you don't necessarily have to be watching everything to get curse of the black spot completely i mean you can you know that's nice and self-contained on its own um and the, and the, the two parters that, you, that, that we've seen so far aren't that different to the old school six parters but doctor who but doctor who it could be it could be argued always took place over an arc of about four weeks anyway so uh, whilst i understand the points and I'm not quite. I, I don't entirely agree. I, I, I'm quite happy with the way things are, to be honest. Mm, I I genuinely don't have a problem with it at all. Um, I'm mainly because it's it's not one or the other. And I think, as as Trev, you rightly said, Night Terror shows probably a little bit too well how you can just come up with a story completely removed from any of the other episodes uh, in that particular series relatively easily. And I think they've probably gone too far in that instance. But as, as to whether I have a problem with how Doctor Who is being told at the moment, no. Uh, I like the arc, certainly within season six, and I, I don't think it's here to stay. I think it will be uh, replaced with lots of standalone episodes. And I have a feeling that someone mentioned yesterday, and I haven't heard Stephen Moffat confirm this, but someone heard that someone from the production office has said that next year will be a series of standalone episodes. There is going to be no strong story arc, probably because it will explode Moffat's brain if he's got to do another one <laughs> straight <laughs> after series five and six. Hello, this is Christopher Benjamin, and you're listening to the Doctor Who podcast. Okay, moving on to our next piece of feedback then, which is all the way from New Zealand. Glenn, it's you again. G'day, Tom, James and Trev. This is Glenn here with my thoughts on Let's Kill Hitler. Moffat's script. Great humour during the Mal's Rory and Amy montage. Am I getting warm? Yes, Rory. Nice surprise, Mal being song. And it answered a question I had been asking myself. How many times had the Time Lady regenerated? Moffat's written dialogue between the Doctor and dying Mal's was brilliant. A well-written reveal. Particularly liked. Some great direction from Richard Senior. Mal's throwing the toy TARDIS from a hand and it seamlessly transitions into the real thing. <laughs> Lovely stuff. And Moffat's homage to his own show Sherlock. The voice interface protocol. There must be someone left in the universe whose life I haven't screwed up yet. Particularly didn't like. Hardly anything. But I do have questions that I'm annoyed I have to ask. How did Mal's go back in time to little Amy's time? Why didn't the Doctor start regenerating? There's plenty of time before Song finally does a thing. One final question. This one's not annoying, but I've got to ask it. Song is the Time Lady's second regeneration, leaving ten regenerations left. When she used them up to bring back the Doctor, did she use one generation to save his life and end up giving him the remaining nine regenerations into the Doctor's person? Thus, giving him more than his allotted twelve. Hmm, works for me. Words on the tessellation unit. Took me a sick to realise where the crew was. Fun idea. Not new, but still fun. Could be a series on its own. Funny, though, that it could recreate appearance and clothing, but not glasses. Unlike the Star Trek crew, these Justice Department guys are a little inept. Surely they would have worked out they were in the wrong time well before starting to give Hitler hell. Love the TARDIS being listed as stolen. There should have been two heartbeats on the tessellation unit's heart scanner. What is the mothership? Or is the mothership a who? And will we see these guys again? 
Yeah, I think we will. Pacing. A nice flowing episode. I was never bored. Next time trailer. I'm looking forward to watching a standalone episode. Rating. Saving much of the episode was the answers we get on a lot of stuff. What really damaged my rating concerns the title. It was too much of a mislead for me. In fact, it verged on lying, and I don't like being lied to, Stephen. Season 6's Let's Kill Moffat. Yeah, uh, Hitler gets a Paul McGann regenerating into a Christopher Eccleston. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Glenn, for your feedback, mate. Pretty much agree with everything you said there. Um, always lovely to hear from you. Keep it coming. The next bit of feedback for Let's Kill Hitler is from Martin Thompson. So over to Mr. M. Thompson. Right, Saturday night, so what better times to recall some feedback about Let's Kill Hitler? Well, first of all, I'm, um, first of all, I was surprised that they used that title after all, but uh, it is one of the great uh, time travel dilemmas as well, isn't it? I mean, what would you do if you have a time machine? Well, go right back and kill Hitler. Uh, the opening was very good as well in the cornfield and again in Hitler's office, and it's great that Hitler actually spends most of the time trapped in a cupboard. It was a great bit of uh, misdirection by Stephen Moffat. Uh, River's regeneration was fun as well. I kind of, I wasn't exactly sure that Mel's was Melody, but um, yeah, it, it sort of, obviously the clues were there. It's obvious now you look back at it. And um, the line as well, she, she said, you know, be quiet, I'm trying to think of a dress size, which I thought was, a, was an absolutely brilliant line. Um, I, I don't know, I don't think I like the, the, the big robot justice thing. All the people inside. It was a decent idea, but uh, I don't know. I uh, thought Alex Kingston was a bit over the top, uh, so was Matt Smith's death acting as well. And now we have you know, the great question, so it's all gone a bit Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Overall, though, another Fast and Furious series opener, and absolutely brilliant. Answers some questions as well. I mean, uh, I can't say I like River reviving the Doctor with her regeneration energy, but it sort of solves two problems with one stone, doesn't it? You. Uh, you bring the Doctor back to life and um, River's free to die at the end of Forest of the Dead. Anyway, I think about uh, that's it now, except to say that um, I'm still watching Torchwood. <laughs> and you know what? I don't think it's that bad so far, but uh, that's that's my opinion anyway. Okay, bye-bye then. Yeah, good point about hitchhikers there, I think, Martin. Uh, the great question. Uh, we're now <laughs> going to be... Well, I suppose that's going to replace our other questions that were um, semi-answered in A Good Man Goes to War and Let's Kill Hitler. You know, who is Riversong? And, you know, when does the Doctor actually meet her for the first time uh, in, in her timeline? And, and both those issues were addressed. So we need something else to divert our attention now. So I think, yes, uh, this this question uh, that was referred to in Let's Kill Hitler, I'm sure will become the basis of much speculation um, amongst fandom and certainly on our podcast as well. I suggest that the question will be, who is the Doctor? That is all. Thank you. Well, all lovely feedback, um, Donald, Glenn and Martin. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much for sending it in. What's next, guys? Well, that's not quite all our feedback of Let's Kill Hitler because there was actually someone who wasn't in the camper van when Tom and I got round to having just a little chat about it last week. And Trev, that's you. What did you think of Let's Kill Hitler, or to use Tom's title, which I much prefer, Let's Eat Cat Food? The car screaming up to the TARDIS at the cornfield. I must admit my 10-year-old son, Sean, picked it up long in advance before I ever thought about it. As soon as the car screeched up to the TARDIS, he went, oh, that's River. He's much smarter than me, listeners. I tell you, maybe (laughs) he should be hosting this show. I felt Let's Kill Hitler was an episode for the fans, and gloriously so. It seemed to be something that the the series was doing in the classic era towards the end of its run with Sylvester McCoy, where it was 
layering in a lot of the stuff for those people that had watched it for many years. But I think with Let's Kill Hitler, I think it's doing it a little bit more intelligently. Luckily, too, I think because we now have the um, previously flashbacks at the beginning of the story, so you can quickly catch up on all the salient points that I, I suppose are referenced in that episode, even if you haven't seen them. So it was definitely an episode for, for someone like us, like you, our wonderful listeners, like the fans who have stuck with the show all these years. So glad they stuffed Hitler in the cupboard. So, so glad. I mean, I was so worried that we were going to be getting this story, I don't know, the Doctor teaming up with Hitler or something like that to stop some alien menace, and it was going to be this weird, I don't know, carry-on type of thing going on, because I saw the ep- uh, I saw the um, Doctor magazine cover recently, which had all of them together. It had Hitler and it had the Doctor and his companions, mm. and it looked a bit comedic, and I thought, oh, that, that doesn't look good i'm not particularly happy with this but it, it was fantastic they shoved him in a cupboard really really quickly i think they went for a little bit of a, a producer's feel to it certainly from the publicity side of things mm, mm. see that that's what worried me i not knowing at that point how much of hitler was actually going to be in the story it was wonderful to see they literally pushed him off screen very very quickly and got to what the episode was really about so i mean like everyone else who's watched the story has said the setting itself is inconsequential. It could have been set anywhere. It could have been set in Roman times. It could have been set in modern times. It could have been anywhere. Um, you know, they've just chosen something really big and obvious and, uh, I suppose, well-known history-wise with, with regards to Hitler. I, I laughed a bit when you guys said that um, I mightn't be particularly thrilled with the way regeneration was treated in this story. Mm. And to be honest, it really didn't worry me that much at all. To, to, to be perfectly honest. I'm shocked. When I was watching all the stuff with um, River giving the regenerations to the Doctor and to a certain extent some of the stuff outside in the courtyard, I kept thinking of David Tennant's hand from the Christmas special. Mm. And I thought, okay, we've had the precedent set. We, we, we've done all this stuff in the show up till now. What they did for the most part with River Song and her regenerations... Um, seemed to sit well with what has already been established in the new series. So it, it didn't really worry me. The only thing that kind of worried me was using the regeneration energy as a sort of a X-Men type shield and, you know, sort of weapon type, you know, thing when, when she was out in the courtyard uh, dealing with those Nazi soldiers. That, that kind of rubbed me up the wrong way a little bit. Mm. Well, the thing I thought would bother you the most was the fact that Riversong could regenerate at all. And the fact because she's not a Time Lord... Yes, she's a child of the TARDIS, but she's not a Time Lord. Therefore, it's no longer sacred to the Time Lord race. No, I'm I'm actually happy with that because I'm I'm happy with what they established in. Is it a good man goes to war where where they talked about, um, or in fact, even a previous episode where they talked about the possibility of because the baby was conceived basically while I, I presume the TARDIS was in flight or in the vortex, that it's like a child of time. Mm. So therefore, it could inherit time lord traits so i'm i'm quite happy with where that particular story is going i mean i'm 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 quite happy and was actually prepared for the fact that river was going to be some form of time lord but then Mm, time lord but time lord's a rank it's not a race it's not you know it's well okay maybe that's a conversation for something for for another time but time lords aren't born they're made no true i've i've 
Yeah, I well, always believe. Well, that's only according to one particular interpretation of of past stories, and it's been examined in more depth in non-canonical media, certainly the books and mm. uh, some of the audios. But it's not ever said for certain, and that's the kind of thing I think no. that no, it Moffat isn't. would play with certainly. I I think I accept it because um, the the concept of regeneration fits in with my views of what a Time Lord Gallifreyan is. I've always believed there are two separate sets of um, people on Gallifrey, or, or used to be on Gallifrey. Mm. The, the Time Lords who could regenerate, and ordinary Gallifreyans. Who can't. Like the ones we saw in Invasion of Time. Right. And, and I think even I seem to remember that the Castellan was mentioned as not actually being a Time Lord. Well, quite so. I mean, and there's all that stuff in... Um at the end of Tenant's Reign, we're talking about um, people, children at the age of eight, being taken to untempered schism, and that's how they, uh, that, and that's where they're first found. It's yeah. first discovered if yeah. they can be so time lords or not. So if if they're using that as a mechanism to um, turn an ordinary person into a regenerating time lord, then it's not much of a leap to say, well, they've taken an ordinary baby, and because um, she's been infused with the time vortex due to her travels in the TARDIS while in the womb then she can be a regenerating Time Lord. Next bit. I'm so surprised you didn't talk about Carnival of Monsters in this story. Because I was sitting there, and when they finally revealed the whole thing about that it wasn't a bigger on the inside um, uh, apparatus, it was actually them miniaturised into it, I sat there for the next five minutes going, "Um, mm, does this violate canon from Carnival of Monsters. Now, it, it really shows you're a true fan when you're not really watching the show, but you're worried about whether it, it breaks continuity from a 1973 how, story. How did it break it. continuity? It didn't. That's, that's what I'm saying. I, I had to think about it for a minute because it, when the TARDIS landed inside the apparatus, I thought, okay, that's the same thing they did in Carnival of Monsters. Is there any discrepancies between the two? Oh, God. Um, it crossed my mind that it was similar to... The premise of Carnival of Monsters, but purely for the miniaturization element, yeah. everything else yeah. that was that was it, and that wasn't really even a reference. I just thought it was a, it was a coincidence that things happened to be made. Oh yeah, smaller. but it it's certainly a parallel you can draw. I mean, I was kind of disappointed in a way that we got a miniaturized people inside the apparatus. I was really looking forward to this being some form of I don't know stolen Time Lord technology, so they actually had some form of proto-TARDIS. It made me think of the Lawrence Miles book, Alien Bodies, where we actually had mm. a TARDIS in the shape of a human. Yes. And yes, I, I thought maybe we're going to get some sort of reference to this being some form of, I suppose, primitive TARDIS, but unfortunately we didn't. No, but I think certainly Tom mentioned that they may be some kind of prototype Time Lords uh, last week, and uh, we probably quite ungraciously played the kooky theory of the week jingle there, but um, <laughs> having said that, I think there's definitely a Time Lord connection, and I'm sure we'll see it again. Having said that, it's got to be an early form of it, and this is something which Glenn mentioned in his feedback, because it can't replicate glasses. It can do motorbikes, moving parts, it can do clothes, but it cannot replicate glasses. It needs to pinch those off the original. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was interesting. I, I, I think you were definitely right in using the uh, kooky theory because I think stretching it to have those agents be early Time Lords is a little bit too much. Just because they're travelling in something that's, to our eyes, bigger on the inside than the out doesn't make them... I mean, it didn't make me start thinking maybe they're Time Lords or, or some form of Time Lord. But anyway, yeah, I'm, I just just the whole concept of that apparatus being used. I mean, what's the point of stuffing it full of all these people 
and risking their lives if something went wrong with it because they would lose a lot of people if that um, apparatus or unit was destroyed or damaged or whatever and it did seem to be quite easy to um, disorientate it at at various points. Mm. I I think the whole point was that it went in, it did its job and then it got beamed back up to the mothership so there shouldn't really have been a terrific amount of... uh, a danger of, of being exposed. It was just unfortunate. No, that the I, I just didn't a... understand why it would need to be stuffed with people. I mean, they're essentially operating it by remote control anyway. Yeah, just to tell why the story. Why couldn't they I do guess. that from their mothership in orbit? Probably. <laughs> I just think it made a mm. but anyway, more that's, interesting that's, story. That's only a minor thing. I I really enjoyed Let's Kill Hitler. I'm I think I want to give it another look to really enjoy it. There were certain aspects I wasn't happy with it about. I was glad they didn't do the Hitler thing. I'm not sure about some of the extra add-ons for the use of regeneration energy. Overall, I, I really enjoyed it. So, let's come back up to date in more ways than one. The last episode of Doctor Who was set in the present day, and it was the last episode to be aired. So, let's, let's have a quick look about this. Night Terrors. Reading's great. You like stories, George? Yeah, me too. When I was your age, about, ooh, a uh, thousand years ago, I loved a good bedtime story. The Three Little Sontarans, The Emperor Dalek's New Clothes, Snow White and Seven Keys to Doomsday, eh? All the classics. Rubbish. Must be broken, eh, those things? Better tidy it away, though, eh? How about in here? <gasps> no. Not in the cupboard. Why not in there, George? It's a thing. Thing we got him doing ages back. Anything that frightens him, we put it in the cupboard. Creepy toys, scary pictures, that sort of thing. And is that where the monsters go? Yeah. On balance, 60% no, 40% yes. And of that 40% yes, it's only 20% definitely. Um, the other tw- the other 20% is like, well, okay, it's weighted towards I liked it. It was okay, it was good, it was scary, it was a wind-up. Um, it was an interesting use of the music in Doctor Who. So, you know, I think, I think it's fair to say that modern Doctor Who is very much a melodrama, but in some places, the absence of music and the change of textures was good. Um, I've got to say, to me, this seemed like a, a retelling of Fear Her. That's the, that's, that's the overwhelming feeling I had when yes. I came away from it. Um, but that said, it also featured some very scary moments. The, the, the transformation of, uh, the, of uh, the landlord and of Amy into the wooden dollies was actually really scary. I don't think it was just the time of night I was watching it. It was genuinely frightening. Um, on the plus side, uh, I get the feeling that George is the as the audience that Doctor Who is actually aimed at in a certain respect. There were some lovely effects. That, you know, the, the Doctor was well characterised um, and it was a split them up and have an adventure type story. I didn't understand a lot of it, but I did appreciate some of the nods back to, the preview, uh, to uh, Doctor Who canon. Um, I don't think any uh, died-in-the-wall fan would have missed the reference to the Seven Keys to Doomsday, which I thought was quite lovely. Um, mm. I, there was a great speech from Matt, from Matt Smith in there as well as the Doctor, but when it comes down to it, if this, is what, if this is what standalone episodes are like, can we go back to having story arcs, please? Because frankly, as I say, I came away from it thinking, fear her. The only good thing about this, though, is that the, the little actor who was playing George was very, very good indeed. Uh, um, and I suspect that in 20, 20, 25 years' time, he'll still be able to tell stories about the time I was in Doctor Who. Um, but 
yeah, I, I'm not one. I'm not one for giving ratings, but I will say it wasn't as good as last week. I kind of agree with what a lot you say there, Tom. I mean, I, I suppose you know the overriding word that I thought of when I watched this was this just seemed to be quite an ordinary episode. Um, I, I did get the fear her parallels in this. Um, it also benefits by being different to fear her with not having the doctor carry the Olympic torch. Mm. So that's another <laughs> plus. Um, it seemed to be a better produced version of Fear Her because it's essentially the same story um, just with different visuals I suppose mm. but um, yeah for, for me I found Night Terrors to be a bit of a clock watcher not that I was essentially bored but I was wondering at the halfway point when they were going to start paying off a lot of the build up that was um, being I suppose built up in this story what we got as the payoff in the end didn't seem to be worth the time we'd invested getting to that point. There, there wasn't a lot of big revelations in this story. It, it did, I don't know, if to me it ended with a bit of a whimper. Yeah, I mean, there, there seemed to be, I mean, I was sort of giving Mark Gatiss a lot more credit in this, thinking, okay, there's a lot of interesting stuff they built up with the five clicks of the light, um, you know, the cupboard and stuff like that. And we're going to be getting some interesting stuff at the end. But, I don't know, in, in, in the end we didn't. Amy and Rory were very, very wasted in this story. They, they just roamed around for 40 minutes mm. and then got rescued and, and then that was it. It seemed like they had to give them something to do and this was all that Mark could come up with. It's the perch we um, hear it all over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, I mean, it's, it's really not excusable when they've only got two companions. It's not like we're in the Davison era where you've got to give four extra mouths something to do and four extra bodies something to do. You've only got two people, and surely in a 45-minute episode you can give them something substantial to do. wasn't too sure about Daniel Mays as the father. I've seen him in other things like off-the-wall stuff like Funland or, um, I suppose, essentially English stories like The Bank Job. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I can really see him as a sort of a concerned father who's who's worried about this son who's having these um, bad nightmares and experiences. He didn't really seem to pull it off for me. Mm. Although I must admit, um, my children picked up on the whole Amy and Rory being inside the house way before I did. There was a very, very quick shot when they first opened the cupboard of that uh, mansion playhouse. Mm. And again, Sean yelled out, ah, that's where Amy and Rory are. And <laughs> so they picked it up a long time before I did. So um, I think your suggestion about getting him on the show is probably quite good because he got Riversong yeah, before yeah. you and I and he got the Doll's House before you and I. So, yeah, yeah. he's obviously <laughs> a lot more intelligent than I am. I can tell you that. Um, what is it with the kid being some weird alien who's now living on Earth? I was quite happy with the fact that it was an ordinary kid who'd somehow reached out psychically to the doctor across the vortex, you know, due, due to the, you know, passion of feelings that he was having about these nightmares and these creatures. But to make him into some weird alien race who was using a perception filter and duping these poor so-called parents into believing he was an ordinary eight-year-old kid, loved the Seven Keys to Doomsday reference. Not a lot of people are probably going to get that, but um, I, I think it was a nice little nod. I also loved uh, Matt Smith's reference to Empires of Glass because I thought, ah, did he write the missing adventure book called Empire of Glass? That would be a wonderful coincidence. But I went and looked and he didn't. So it obviously wasn't as exciting as I thought it was. <laughs> so, sort of came away with this thinking, it's probably not one of those ones I'm going to watch again because there's nothing really to draw me back in and 
give it a second viewing. Do you know, again, it, this, this is why I say fear her, because every so often I'll dip back into my Series 2, Series 3 box sets. Um, but there are, are episodes which I've really only ever seen once. Um, so yeah, it, it's just one of those. Don't get me wrong, bad Doctor, not bad Doctor Who. It's, it's not, it wasn't bad. It was genuinely scary. I liked it. I mean, good, you know, average Doctor Who is still better than good Torchwood to me. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, but this is like, this was definitely Scooby Who. Absolutely Scooby Who. Yeah, I, I know there, there seem to be some interesting elements in this story that I thought, okay, they're really going to start building on this. And especially once they reached the point where the Doctor and the Father realised that Amy and Rory were in the doll's house mm. and that they were also there. I thought, ah, this is interesting. Mm. That we're going to go something somewhere really interesting with this. But it didn't. Um, but then it sort of wrapped up at the end with a, I don't know, a nice family moment, which... I don't, it seemed a little bit out of place in Doctor Who. I, I'm not sure if it's out of place. I just don't think that Mark Gatiss can do it quite as well as Stephen Moffat. And, and, and certainly for me, this was Mark Gatiss trying to tell a story that Stephen Moffat would have been far more suited to. And I, I would imagine either this high entire concept was Stephen Moffat or Mark Gatiss is basically trying to learn <laughs> from Stephen Moffat because I don't think he's as good a writer as as Stephen Moffat. Well, it, it's interesting you say that because in my notes here, I've got the last line is that the story is about change, becoming, and potential, which is pretty much what this whole story arc seems to be seems to be about. So, the elements of the arc are, are, are inherent in the in the story. But I think but I think you're right. Um, had Stephen Moffat written this, it would be slightly different. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I the, the feeling mm. I got from this entire episode was inconsequential, and I, I I thought the major thing that was missing from it was any reference to the search for Amy's child. Now, if, if you think about, you know, the whole of, of, of the first, mm, yes, first seven episodes, I was wondering whether to include Black Spot or not. Uh, it, it, but it's, it's all been about uh, what, what's happening with River, what's happening with the baby, uh, the ganger, you know, was replacing real Amy who was pregnant and so on. And... You know, even in Let's Kill Hitler, right at the very beginning, it was, Doctor, have you found my baby? And it was, um, no, <laughs> I haven't. Mm. Even the prequel for that episode was all about the Doctor feeling awkward, not wanting to speak to Amy because he hadn't found the baby. And all of a sudden, you get a standalone episode, which, quite frankly, we and a lot of our listeners have been crying out for. But it's too standalone. Um, it, yeah. If, you, if yeah. you take a view as a parent, and uh, this is a point that was made by Ross Cleaver um, over on Twitter and included us in on it. If, if you take a point of view from a parent, okay, and Amy's just been through this incredibly traumatic set of events uh, throughout Series 6, where she's given birth and the baby's, you know, the last time she saw the baby was when it evaporated into goo. Okay, that, and she was holding that baby. And she's perfectly happy to spend nearly 50 minutes gallivanting around an inconsequential storyline without even a reference to it. This was um, completely unrealistic as far as I'm concerned. And I think it's almost certainly because the episode shifted in order. And it could have fitted into Series 5 easily. It could have fitted anywhere. I'm, I'm all for having good, strong, 45-minute contained stories but not at the expense whereby the arc may as well have just dropped away and not existed. And once again, you get that 
you know, almost apologetic camera shot of the scanner in the TARDIS at the end. So, yeah, I, I didn't, didn't like that part of it at all. Said the same phrase that I've got in my notes, two standalone. Mm. And I, I think it was even more criminal right at the end of the story where, where they get back to the TARDIS and they're all happy-go-lucky and, you know, the Doctor basically says, where next? Yeah, it's ridiculous, and frankly. You, you think Amy put their hand up and... You think Amy would put her hand up and go, ah, let's go find my kid. Yeah. Let's go find Melody. But no, it's, oh, you know, we might head off to this, that or the other, or, you know, blah, 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 Precisely. blah, Precisely. And I, I think a really good example of this was, was um, I mean, I was watching it with my wife again last night, and at the end of it, she was saying, well, so is the river thing finished now then? Because she saw a lot, let's kill Hitler, you know, river going off to look for the doctor. And she was confused, and she's not a fan in any way, shape or form. She's just someone who <laughs> is married to one, and therefore has to watch them all. Uh, but <laughs> she didn't understand why there wasn't even, you know, a two-line exchange about God, you know, why it was so important that they went charging off through time and space just following the uh, sender of this psychic message. It, it's weird, isn't it? Because, I mean, we've been talking a lot over the last few podcasts not deliberately we have to say about the nature or the way doctor who is being told these days and when we do get a standalone episode i think all three of us are fairly united in saying well you know this wasn't actually what we were looking for it was it no. was good in certain ways and we like the classic homages oh paradise towers by the way did you get the very clear paradise towers reference that was my other note. I said, <laughs> I was watching it all through going, mm, this is what Paradise Towers would have looked like if it was done on location. Uh, well, it wasn't so much the fact that it was set in a tower block. I hadn't actually thought of that, but well done. Uh, I was thinking about the disposal of the old lady with her legs uh, disappearing into the black sacks yeah, yeah, in exactly yeah. the same way Tabby and Tilda did in, uh, in Paradise Towers down a garbage disposal unit. Um, <laughs> and that was good. Um, and also the emergence of what seems to be another small arc of putting things in cupboards. It was Hitler last week, and it was everything that was scary this week. <laughs> so let's see what goes in the cupboard next week. <laughs> Almost sounds like a children's TV show. Now, children, what's in the cupboard this week on Doctor Who? The last thing that I wanted to say on it is is that, yes, I very much got the vibe of fear hurt as well. I think it was done better, and I think the boy was very, very similar to the Isolus in the, uh, in, in the story written by Matthew Graham. I do wonder whether or not people did notice at some point the similarity of the story. I think I would hesitate to say that it was the, it was the same story, because it wasn't identical, but there were certainly a lot of very similar things involved in this so but on, on the whole for me i enjoyed it more than i disliked it but i i still came away from it with a general sense of disappointment yeah same here i mean it, it's not an identical story sure but it, it's as close as to be the same story pretty much you know kid having psychic problems in a suburban house i mean if if you boil the plot down to the to its base elements fear her and night terrors are the same story. Mm, the I, way I, I would disagree. I disagree. I think it's the same premise. Um, and I think the characterisation of the Doctor was actually quite similar in the two stories as well. But Matt Smith wasn't anywhere near as bonkers as he's been in the past. 
Um, and the only one I would really want to compare it to is, is, is Black Spot, because that's the only other one that you could say has a kind of self-contained feel to it. And within that story, he is zany, he is crazy, to the point where I remember feeling it was beginning to grate on me. This time around, he's much calmer. You know, this is a bit more of a sensible mm. Matt Smith, with the exception of the air kissing, perhaps, which I still love the fact that he hasn't quite got that yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose he is calmer, too, because he's got to have a lot of... I mean, that that's what I found the real strength of, of this episode, the interaction with the kid. All that stuff in the bedroom was good, the stuff where he was using his sonic screwdriver to activate the toys. I thought that was quite nice. I mean, it, it really brought out the, you know, the childlike side of, of Matt Smith's Doctor. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I really wanted them to spend more time just focused on that. I was quite frustrated at one point where um, the, the father hears the knock on the door and the, the landlord comes past. And then for the next five minutes, there's this annoying intercut between the great scenes in the bedroom and the tussle with the landlord about the outstanding rent out in the lounge room. And which doesn't really go anywhere anyway. So it was perplexing. They spent so much time building this up and nothing really happened with mm. it because you really wanted to see what the doc was doing with the kid. Agreed, uh, which we did in A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. And I, I very much got a vibe of that too. You know, a boy in pyjamas, the doctor in the bedroom, you know, just sitting there forging that relationship with him. And, mm. I, you know, it, it's riveting um, to watch Matt Smith operate with child actors because... He's basically a big kid himself, I think, but uh, this very much describes Moffat's Doctor Who. It's it's the world of the Doctor through the eyes of children, and it's something that I generally buy into. My first note is says this is who Doctor Who is aimed at when, when we've got the character of George sitting on the bed. Um, but to be honest with you, 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 you said it all. This, this is about looking at Doctor Who through the eyes of children. Um, and the Doctor, in as much as he complains that he needs companions for him to see the, see how wonderful the world, it, uh, the universe actually is, um, he, he he remains incredibly childlike. And it's only when he and I suppose in character in the universe uh, that 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 works wonderfully. But also, it's kind of clear that he's got a good rapport with the child actors as well, because that's got to be kind of. Um, it's got to be a very daunting situation for a child actor, and I just get the feeling that what, what's being what's being built up is uh, this the, the, a set of stories to be told in a decade's time or in two decades' time about that time I was on Doctor Who with Matt Smith, who's now the Oscar winning Oscar winning uh, world famous actor. Um, so, it, which is good because the bottom line, I think, with with Doctor Who as it's always been, and I think the, the, the current show is very aware of this, is that the best place to seek Doctor Who is in the mind of a child. We are sat here at 30-odd um, talking about this because it got us as kids. And, you know, Trev, it's, it's amazing to hear that, you know, you, you know you, you're watching this with your, with your, uh, with your own two sons. Uh, and if we think back to Toby Haydock, that uh, Moth Take My Doctor Who scarf, it's all about him building a relationship with his son through the medium of Doctor Who. Um, and anything which says, well, all right, look, this is going back to the kids now, is a good thing. And so, you know, James, your last comment, I absolutely agree with. This is about seeing the, the universe of the Doctor through the eyes of a child. I just wish the story had been a, just a bit stronger. That's all. I mean, if, 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 if people hadn't seen uh, Paradise Towers, as you rightly say, or hadn't seen Fear Her, then, okay, that's, that's great. But I, I don't really want to see it again. And, I, and I'm a Doctor Who fan. I can put up with watching the same thing over and over again numbers of t- a number of times. But I was just hoping for a little bit more. Don't get me wrong. I, I wasn't overly disappointed. But I just thought, well, okay. You know, Mark Gatiss, on paper, this should have been really, really good. But, yeah, you know, but we, we said that about The Idiot's Lantern as well. And I know that The Unquiet Dead has got a very good 
reputation within fandom but there are some very awkward lines in that script particularly i think with the ninth doctor calling charles dickens mate and i i I never really expect too much from mark gatiss scripts within doctor who that's mainly because i've listened to a lot of well i say a lot a couple of his big finish audios and have not been overly impressed certainly invaders from mars wasn't that good um phantasmagoria had its moments but it's he he's okay at telling Doctor Who, but he's no Moffat, and I think he's a wannabe Moffat. But you know, perhaps we'll end up seeing more scripts with him, given that Moffat works very closely with him on Sherlock, and I know that they've known each other for a very long period of time. So I doubt, mm. I doubt if it's a partnership because it is almost a partnership. I think certainly um, for for Sherlock, that is going to be broken up anytime soon. It's interesting, actually. I was reading um, an interview in the Radio Times, which Mark did recently, and, and, and he was talking a little bit about Night Terrors. And he made the, co- the really strange comment there about, oh, Doctor Who's never really used dolls in a scary way before. Well, apart from and the Celestial Toy Maker, Although obviously. it wasn't a big vibe <laughs> in Night Terrors, I really got a vibe for Greatest Show in the Galaxy a little bit. Well, it, it was clowns yes. in that, mechanised clowns. Yes, yes it was a very sort of a doll-like feel to them, you know, the way they sort of moved. And, you know, there's there's some incredibly chilling moments in Greater Show in the Galaxy with, with those mechanised creatures that I sort of started thinking a little bit about when I was watching Night Terrors. Well, mm. I, I'll go, yeah. I, I agree with you, but what about the Celestial Toymaker? What about the Mind Robber? True, on both counts. What about Talons of Wen Cheyenne, yeah, for goodness yeah, sake? Yeah, absolutely. To- to- 100% behind you there. But, but, but here's the thing. I, I suspect Mark Gatiss is... Well, I, do you know what? I think, he's, I think Mark Gatiss is, is, a bit, is a bit fantastic, frankly. I mean, you know, the, there are the days where he writes openly about being um, an impoverished drama student living in Leeds, and his, only li- his lifeline was Doctor Who. Um, people have bumped into him coming out of Tenth Planet, clutching his Doctor Who figures and stuff. Uh, and James, as you were began to refer to earlier on, you know that, that he's contributed a good amount to the Doctor Who canon, uh, certainly through uh, the written word and certainly through Big Finish as well. So I, I, I say all power to him. It's just, and, and I'm not trying to beat down on what is clearly a very very talented writer but i'm just saying this particular story i just nah, it, it, it's not it, it's not the it's not my favorite this season so far i'm not saying it's bad mm. but it's not my favorite but to be honest mm. it's like it's, I, was, I was gonna say it's almost not for me it kind of is for me because it's a family show but I, I i'm 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 wary of picking at it too hard because as i say bad doctor who or not even bad doctor who average doctor who is better than a lot of other good telly So that pretty much brings us to the end of another, just quite frankly, fantastic Doctor Who podcast. <laughs> um, it only leaves us to say, um, you may have heard that we were nominated for a Parsec Award. We were one of five finalists in one of the categories for that award. They were announced at Dragon Con uh, just a couple of days ago now, as, as of hearing this. Um, unfortunately, we didn't win, guys. Sorry, but it was an absolute honour and, and pleasure to be nominated and also to make it to the uh, final five for our category and a big thanks to scott and chris for being our representatives at dragon con just Mm. on the off chance they might have have to pick up a little statue for us but um this year it wasn't to be in a couple of short days guys though we're going to be bringing you an extra episode of the doctor podcast james went along to hooverville this last weekend and was lucky enough to have a chat with 
80s Doctor Who girl, Nicola Bryant. James and some other members of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance yes! will be bringing that interview to you um, on the DWP, so please check that out in a very few short days. But then straight after that, we'll be back to New Who again with The Girl Who Waited, so that'll be uh, episode 100. On 100 of episodes Who of the Doctor can Who Podcast. You be- I, I can scarcely believe I'm saying that, but episode 100 of the Doctor Who podcast will be uh, our review of The Girl Who Waited. Well, yeah, but if, if we'd stuck to the, the production schedule that you outlined to begin with, we'd, episode 100 would have been four months after we'd started. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, would have, I was a bit of a hard taskmaster, wasn't I? But you put me into line quite quickly. <laughs> Indeed. And I have to say, it does actually feel quite bad to say this, but I'm, I'm not going to be there uh, on the no. podcast for episode 100. And there's, there's nothing I can do about this one, I'm afraid. Uh, my wife was born on a particular day of the year, and that just so happens to be the day that we would be recording this on. And uh, it, it's just unavoidable, I'm afraid. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I will be absent from episode 100, but I will take heart in the fact that we've actually released considerably more than 100 podcasts, haven't we, Trev, uh, since we've, since well, we've we started. Have, yes, this must yes. be something like about the 100 and... 20th or something uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure <laughs> if you consider all it of feels the, um, about quizzes. 120 yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah we're not going to make a huge deal about it this time around um we might do possibly when i get back we'll have a bit of a delayed party in the caravan that we'll leave the recorder on for um so long tom as you don't bring your party poppers again and let them off tune in the microphone we should be okay for that and I've told you that's all healed now. <laughs> yes, I know. But, you know, having to get someone out to the camper van, you know, when they should be dealing with people who have drunk too much the night before, as opposed to having to deal with a party popper in the ear, um, is, is probably a misuse of medical services. True. There we go. <laughs> anyway, as Trev says, we'll be back in a few days with none other than Perry herself. Oh, God. Bye for now. See you guys. Bye-bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.